Welcome back to the... Oh, shit. I was thinking sensible medicine. No, this is how we're going to do this for plenary session. Okay. <clears throat> Should keep it. It was good. <laughs> Welcome back to the plenary session roundtable discussion. I'm joined by Dr. Mike Putnam. He is joining us from Medical College, Wisconsin. Todd Lee, Associate Professor, McGill University, and John Mandrola. You know him well, cardiologist, Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to talk about this paper, the emulation of randomized clinical trials with non-randomized database analyses. This is obviously the hottest issue out there, and you're going to learn all about it in this episode. So gentlemen, thanks for doing this. Thanks for so, having me. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, that um, this is an issue where we're all a little bit divided. So maybe I might have you all, just for the record... Start by saying, you know, where you fall on this spectrum in terms of your opinions about this topic. Let's go with you, Mike. Yeah, I'm happy to lead off. And I think I will be maybe on an island or at least perhaps on one side of this. So I, I love this paper and I love this topic. And I think that this uh, was a big success for observational research and causal inference in particular. And I will use the causal word just to see how much I can trigger John and Todd over there. So that'll, that'll be my, my opening statement. All right. You say it's a, it's a good day for non-randomized evidence. How about you, Todd? What do you say? I think that uh, I'm the type of person who has published observational studies and who has come to the side of conducting randomized controlled trials. And so that's my day in and day out. And so I may have a bias in the opposite direction. All right. Now I let people like it. People like a good fight. John Mandrella, where are you going to fall in this debate? Well, the first thing I'd say is that it is a really important topic because there's tons of observational real world data out there. And there's tons of unknowns in clinical medicine. And the idea of being able to use this clinical data to make causal inference is amazing. But I come down on the fact that this paper is the best case scenario, some of the best scientists in the world. And they, um, uh, they, 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 were a little bit better than a coin toss. And so I, I think toss. it's pretty, I think it's pretty sobering for the use of, uh, observational data. All right, good. Okay. So the, the chips have been, have been set on the table. Now we're going to get into this. Okay. So in terms of background, I'll give the listeners a little background and then I'll ask you all to see if I missed any parts. I guess I'd say that, um, you know, randomized controlled trials have been done since the 1940s. You know, that's when we invented them. Why humanity didn't invent them sooner is a subject of a post I wrote for Sensible Medicine. But, you know, I think it's an interesting question. But the first randomized controlled trials were the MRC, streptozoin studies I've been taught. But prior to randomization, we had some controlled studies like LIND and vitamin C from back in the diggity. Uh, the problem is LIND didn't formally do randomization. He used sort of just control groups. Um, but this whole idea that you would flip a coin and assign people to control groups so that you'd create sort of groups of people with equivalent outcomes distributions in the absence of a therapeutic effect, and then you do something to one group, not the other, and you could look for causality. I mean, that was a type of human ingenuity. Now, randomized control trials are generally thought to work pretty well on the time zero problem, anchoring our time zero. They're thought to work well on confounding. They can handle both uh, measured and unmeasured confounders. Uh, the other thing I always like to say is they work even pretty well in many cases on multiplicity because you, you can run a million observational studies on a question, but in randomized trials, you have a finite amount. And I think there's a bias that people think they are, they are reliable causal estimates. 
the classic knock on them is, of course, they enroll like Olympian-type people who don't have any other comorbidities. Uh, that's a question of internal over. That's a question of external generalizability, and um, it's really could be solved perhaps if they just enrolled everyday Americans in a pragmatic design. The last 25 years, we've had a feud in methods, and that feud is: can a well-done observational study give you a useful causal conclusion? Uh, and something that you would almost hang your hat on like you would a randomized control trial. And I think that uh, there's always been two camps. There's a camp that's been in favor of observational studies, a camp that's been against it. Uh, one of the tools we use to argue is this method of we'll take a set of questions and we'll do both, uh, or we'll have both existing, and we'll ask what's the agreement between the two. And this paper comes in that genre. It's about the agreement between observational studies, randomized control trials on the same clinical questions. The difference is... Now we're stepping up our game. We're going to use the sort of framework by Miguel Hernan and Jamie Robbins from Harvard of this sort of trial emulation, which is a little bit different than traditional observational studies because it more formally recapitulates sort of an enrollment phase, a treatment phase. It, it has more formal methods around how you handle dropout and contamination. Um, it doesn't just assign people to what they got. It assigns people to what you intended them to get, and it allows for all the things that might happen in a clinical trial setting. Enter this paper. I believe this was commissioned by FDA. FDA is really interested in real-world data. They want to know if these observational real-world database studies can recapitulate the results of randomized trials. The authors picked 32 trials that were used for drug either approval or post-marketing safety commitments in the case of diabetes products. And uh, they're looking at several different metrics of agreement. One metric, the most stringent metric of agreement they look at is statistical significance agreement, which means that both the point estimate and the confidence interval are on the same side of the null. Uh, and by that metric, they're saying like 56% of these trials could be successfully replicated. I think this is what John means by coin flip. Uh, there are other metrics you can look at uh, where you don't put so much stock in the upper bound of the confidence interval. And um, I, so I think that's sort of the vague introduction to the field. Maybe I'll turn it to you, Mike, to say, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more about this particular paper. Uh, maybe if you want to talk about why these 32 studies, why not other studies. Maybe if you want to talk about um, why you think this method is a little bit different than other methods. You know, what, what is the extra background for this particular study? Yeah, I, I'll take the extra background. And okay. I, I want to take issue already with something that John okay. said. You know, the, the first thing is that this was not, this was just not the best case scenario. And there's a couple of really important caveats to what they're doing here. You know, the first is that they set out to replicate RCTs, and that, that that that's not really the gold standard to me. The gold standard, and full disclosure, I am an RCT first guy. We are all in lockstep that we should just be doing way more RCTs, and that RCTs are the best level of evidence. But a lot of the RCTs that they evaluated are RCTs that you guys don't like very much. I mean, Vinaya has an entire podcast about how much paradigm. he dislikes paradigm, you know? But in this case, the observational study came to the right conclusion. <laughs> and I was, you, I was going to put you on the, uh, put your feet to the fire there, because I think you agree with this, this conclusion. And that bolsters my point, which is that RCTs are not the gold standard. The truth is the gold standard. And we, you know, we don't know the truth, obviously. So they're shooting for the next best thing. But for one, the fact that they didn't necessarily replicate RCTs doesn't show that they didn't find the truth. It shows that they didn't find the RCT. 
And the second thing is that they chose these, these were a selected group of trials. They're important big trials that they thought they could replicate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are trials that were replicatable in a reasonable fashion. And a lot of these trials have placebo comparators, which is difficult to do in observational data. And so, and, and a lot of these trials had funky things that they did in their design. And they failed to replicate some of the funky things in Paradigm, and that's part of why they looked different. Um, the fact that they didn't have, that they were constrained to using placebo control versus active um, active substance is also a constraint. I think that observational data that looks at comparative efficacy is much stronger. It's an easier way to find a time zero. So this was certainly not the best uh, the best case scenario. And if anything, I think it was a very constrained scenario. So I, I have more thoughts, but I want to give John a chance to respond to that. Mm -hmm. John, you want to take it or? I think we should go to Todd. Okay, okay. Well, well I want to say one thing and I'll put it to Todd, which yeah, is ahead. that, and I want you to answer this question because I think he makes a very fair point right off the bat which is the gold standard that we will all agree we care about, is the truth. And by capital T truth, we mean if you do X or Y or Z, do you lower cardiovascular mortality? Do you increase bleeding? Do you lower PEs? Do you lower MIs or not? We care about the capital T truth. And I guess one question to you is, you know, maybe in a perfect world, what is the capital T truth? Is it a single randomized study? Is it you know, what, what do you think of, what, what would be your, you know, what is the capital T truth or what's the closest human beings can get to the capital T truth? All right. And then your thoughts on that. Let's go, Todd. You're on okay. the spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there we go. So, you know, we're going to come back to the example in lupus that, that Mike had on Twitter about uh, non-replicatable randomized controlled trials, right? But I think if you think historically and prior to paradigm, you think about the idea that to bring a drug onto the market, you had two positive randomized controlled trials mm -hmm. in a large population. Mm -hmm. And you had reasonable surety there that you weren't dealing with false positive results because you have replication. And, you know, to, to that extent, could, could you call that truth? You could, it's the closest thing you can get to it. I think the closest thing you can get to it is multiple studies that align in the same direction and with the same conclusions, mm -hmm. ideally randomized. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, Mike made a very good point when he was talking about the difference between comparative effectiveness of drug A versus drug B and comparative effectiveness of something versus nothing. And I, and I, I will say that, you know, these methods of, of adjustment and um, target trial emulation, I think they probably do work better when you're comparing something that a doctor would normally give with something that an equally educated doctor would also normally give. When A and B are commonly in use and you're comparing the outcomes between A and B and the only difference in who gets A and who gets B is a random function of where you trained and what your local microcosm is. So, for instance, if you were doing a head-to-head -head of apixaban and rivaroxaban for the treatment of atrial fibrillation, and your center is an apixaban center and other centers are more rivaroxaban centers, and over a large data source, you're probably going to arrive at a reasonable estimate of comparison between the two, as long as there's no reason the doctor's deciding, no, no that hidden confounding by indication. But when you're comparing something to nothing, you know, like people have been doing in COVID-19, and I don't really want to go down the, the wormhole of 
COVID-19 and observational target trials for molnupiravir or uh, nirmatrelvir or ritonavir. But there's something very different about the doctor's decision to treat and the doctor's decision not to treat a patient completely um, that I think is, is much harder to capture in any kind of electronic data source and probably less amenable. So if I were to say, conclude, if I were to say what I think capital T truth is, multiple randomized controlled trials all moving in the same direction that pool together in a wonderful meta-analysis and, and arrive at an approximation of the truth. And that's when you sing Kumbaya. That's when we there all sing go. Kumbaya. Okay, so I agree with you on the capital T truth, but let me push you back a little bit on a Pixaban Rivaroxaban. Uh, typically, a Pixaban dose BID, a Rivaroxaban's dose daily. Uh, that, is an, that is an interesting confounder. Because what that means in my practice is that the person who may be more squirrely, less likely to, uh, to take it BID, I might be giving one rather than the other, and that person might be at a higher propensity for VTE, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this to just to, 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 just to nope. say that, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're 100% right. I think it's, it's maybe not the perfect comparison, uh, but it's right. much better comparison than than some of the other comparisons. And you can get into whether rivaroxaban should have been a once-a-day drug, you know, to begin with. From Correct, the, right. I know that the the big, data is, the it should be BID too, right, yes. And but, dibigatran, you're going to be starting to check levels, yeah. Prior to the antidote for dibigatran, you could have done the same thing with dibigatran versus apixaban and, and you know, probably arrived at something that's reasonably correct. You know, within a class, if, you, if I wanted to know... Um, which is, is there any advantage to any one of the ACE inhibitors? Right. I mean, what, what you're really saying is that in a situation where there's a true natural experiment, where it's through a quirk of uh, training or happenstance that different doctors have different preferences, then one would uh, uh, trust this method a little bit more. Let's go to you, John. What are your thoughts on this? But the problem, the mm-hmm. the problem I have with with Mike's statement is that you you just don't know when the emulation is correct and and when it isn't correct because that's the problem is that because because it's not 99% or 90% and because these are selected trials when the trial emulates with real world data we don't know take paradigm in paradigm in the randomized trial I mean uh, the the hazard the 20% reduction with real world data it's one so which is correct now if if you know i i have my bias but i i don't i don't really know and i can just tell you you know then i and i see the same way in paradigm but but i tell you that most of our colleagues would argue what are you crazy the randomized control trial would be would be uh you would want to lean on it but so the my problem is is that we don't know and in fact i could show you a study from from the Stanford group showing that when you reanalyze randomized controlled trials, sometimes by the same author, there's different results. And you have Brian Nosick's work with, with analytic method that when that, that results can turn on analytic method. And so, you know, in the old days, Todd brought up, you know, the trial in the old days, when we studied heart failure, ACE inhibitors, carvedilol, mineralic corticoid receptor antagonists like spironolactone, we showed major reductions in death. Now we're in this we're in this era of of incremental benefits where it's just a lot harder to show major effects like that. So I just think it's 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 much harder to to show truth now than it was uh, it 
say, 15 to 20 years ago. All right, I'm going to give Mike a chance to respond to these interesting thoughts. Uh, but I guess I I'm, I'm, I'm want to maybe frame it a little bit. First, the one thing I want to clarify with Mike is, I mean, does he accept the 56% number? He may, I mean, right, okay, so maybe the first thing to say is he may push back because there are other methods of agreement argued in this paper. Mike may prefer one of the other ones that's a little bit higher. So, I mean, I think a coin flip is going to be a hard one to defend, but he, so give him that oh, Okay, there's 66%. I mean, who cares between 56% and 66%? I mean, you wouldn't get on a plane if it had a 33% chance of crashing. Okay, I mean, but it, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, well, Mike's counterargument may be that even a single randomized trial might have a 33% chance of crashing. It might be, you know. Well, okay, let, I mean, me, let me jump in yes, here. Okay, let's go on. Y'all are definitely reading this trial, this paper in a certain way. I uh, mean, the way uh, they assess statistical agreement was not this extremely conservative way that you're describing, you know, because some of these trials were non-inferiority and there's some complicated stats with how the non-inferiority and superiority stuff, whatever. If you take statistical significance and include their partial agreement on the statistical significance, it's not 56. The overarching number was 80, 70 something percent, 75 percent, 75, 76, 75 percent. But, but let me and, push you on that. Go on. Well, and let me push you on this one. So that is when we tried to replicate trials that weren't really replicable. If you look at the, the question that really matters to me, which is, is observational data valid? under the circumstances where they replicated trials that were replicable with observational data they asked the right kinds of questions under those circumstances they were actually at 94 percent where they met statistical significance and oh, so you're saying 56 percent yeah. and you're getting that on the record but i would say that under a circumstance where observational data can replicate the trial we're at 94 percent using a reasonable but mike on my good days in the casino i'm a winner on my bad days, I'm, you know, okay, all right, we'll come to that. Okay, but well, no, let me ask you this, Plato. Plato is one of these examples. Look, they're going to say this doesn't meet statistical significance agreement. It does meet estimate agreement per their paper. And what they're saying is in the randomized control trials, 0.84, and it's a significant study, so Plato's a practice-changing trial. In the uh, non-randomized observational state, it's 0.92 with a confidence interval crossing one, so arguably it wouldn't have changed practice. But as you can see, I mean, there's a significant overlap in the confidence intervals. So how would you, I mean, what is your takeaway for a Plato trial like this? Somebody like Mandrola might say these are very big differences. Like it's either do it or don't do it, but you're going to say, and they're going to say that there's some agreement here. So how do you and, treat it? Yeah. And so let me just jump in there. So yeah. the estimate agreement, I think is a little bit lax. I think the okay. better question is, are we falling on the same side of one? And, you know, do we have the same range here? And so, you know, the Plato trial there, I'm mm -hmm. fine saying that that wasn't agreement. You okay. know, they disagreed okay. there. But even with that caveat, if we take Plato out and we look at the other ones, if you show that table there, most of these trials, 75% has statistical agreement. And that's under the context of a lot of these just being non-replicable designs. If you look down, I mean, a lot of these things were weird. They're placebo controls. We don't know what the placebo would be for the placebo group. And if you say, you know, looking at the trials where we had either a head-to-head -head or the placebo, there was a clear start date, we could replicate the trial. The agreement's 94%. So I don't want this 56% entering the zeitgeist. So well, that's let me ask okay. Yeah. Let's go to Todd, and then we'll come back. Yeah. I, I like that you were highlighting Einstein PE. Yes, that's what I was going Okay, yeah. go on. River, okay, River Rocks the band. But, you know, that Einstein PE was a registrational trial, right? Right. They were trying to have the FDA approve. Uh, actually, it is approved, though, for the indication. I think they fooled it, right? I think yes. they fooled Einstein PE and Einstein MVP <laughs> and did some yeah, magic. Yeah. But anyway, assume that Einstein PE was the only study. Yeah. You're the manufacturer, and you bring that 1.12 with a hazard uh, with a with a ratio going up to 1.68. You say you're saying there's a chance. Will you approve my <laughs> drugs, friends? 
They're going to be like, eh, we're not going to approve your drug. But look at look at the observational mm -hmm. estimate. Yeah. It looks like it's an amazing drug in the observational estimate. Look at that 33% uh, relative reduction in risk with a huge, significant confidence interval. I think that's like a, a diametrically opposed regulatory conclusion. Okay. And so it gets into what's the purpose of emulating. Um, and remember, of course, that it was the FDA, it's called FDA's RCT duplicate project. So, so why is the regulator interested in doing this? Well, I'll put oh, on my tinfoil yes. hat and say that I also do not think we should use this for regulatory approval. But I, that, I don't think that that's my take home, that we should be approving drugs based on this. And I, I don't think that they're leaning that way. I, I sure hope not. Well, so, tell us, wait, well, you know, Mandrill, you want to jump in? I want to ask him what his take home is. Like, what is he, when does he think he should use it? But Mandrill, you want to go first? So I want to ask you, yeah. though, um, you know, you, you made the point, Mike, about there were 32 trial emulations and 16 where they looked really more emulatable than than others. But but that's that's sort of uh, post hoc knowledge, right? Because these trials have already been done. What if you're just looking at real world data and you don't really it's one of these situations where you don't have a trial. You don't you really have no knowledge. And how would you know whether it's Einstein P.E. or, uh, you know, you, so that's my problem is that that you know, you don't know how well it'll emulate if you don't have prior knowledge like they had here. Let me let me give my brief tirade about RCTs not replicating either, and then I'll then I'll handle that. Right. So you know, I think that we're all living under this delusion that RCTs are replicating and perfect. You know, in my field, a little while back, we had the CARES trial. It showed that Fabusistat probably killed people, and allopurinol saved lives from a cardiovascular perspective. And the guidelines came out, and they preferenced allopurinol. And then we ran the FAST trial, and it completely contradicted it. Two years ago, we had Tulip One, which is a trial of anafrolimab and lupus showed no benefit whatsoever. Then Tulip 2 was published a couple months, months later and showed a big benefit. And now anafrolimab is approved and everyone thinks it's God's gift to lupus. You know, and then most recently, the thing that I put on Twitter, you know, we, we had a publication of SLE Brave 1 and SLE Brave 2. They had the same like kitschy little acronym and it, the, the method sections were copy pasted from mm -hmm. each other and mm -hmm. they're published in Lancet on the same day. Mm -hmm. And one of them, the baricitinib for lupus, the baricitinib four milligram dose looked great, looked like it would get approved in the, in the other trial. It looked like a completely null effect. And so I think that what we should be doing here is saying, you know, how often does any study get close to the truth? And, I, and RCTs consistently fail to replicate. And so, you know, I, I think that the perspective here should be, you know, in the context where we did the right study, how close is that to what we would have gotten from doing an RCT? I think there should be a high bar. We are not doing this for regulatory approval. But if we're trying to get more information, I think this shows that we're not that far off. And I don't think many RCTs would replicate at 93%. I bet if you reran Paradigm and did it the way you guys want to do it, I bet you'd find the, the result that they found here. You'd you find mean the completely, completely intuitive and logical way to do it? Okay, okay. Yes. But actually, okay. If you ran it the proper way. A few you, questions for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I agree with you there. But a few questions for you. Uh, question number one. Let's take that yeah. first example. I may know a little bit about it. What is it? Fabruxostat. Fabruxostat. Yeah, I don't even okay. know how to say it. <laughs> okay. I, rem I was a resident when it got FDA approved. Yeah. And if I recall, let's let's just talk about the regulatory history of that drug. Should it have even been FDA approved in the first place? I mean, what is the advantage? Does it, it's not actually better than allopurinol. It wasn't a non-inferiority trial showing it's not worse than allopurinol. It shouldn't have been a non-inferiority style anyway because it's an oral drug that costs fucking 50 times as much. So I guess the first <laughs> question is, 
why did we, you know, and cardiovascular outcomes is all like, we're talking about safety, but first is really, what was the justification ever to have it on the market? Am I miss, missing something? This is a gout drug. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of justification for having it on the market. I'd say that uh, allopurinol in particular is associated with a hypersensitivity syndrome that okay. affects people of certain genetic, uh, with genetic um, uh, markers more. And so it's good to have another urate lower. No, no, no. Okay, but then let, let's, let me push on that a little bit. Okay, so let's say you're at the FDA and you know this. So then I would imagine you either do a randomized controlled trial where you show equivalent efficacy outcome for gout, but uh, better safety profile. That'll be approval. Or sure. you try to pre-specify who you think is at high risk of this bad outcome, hypersensitivity, and in a trial of those people, you know, randomize them and show superiority. I guess my question is, the initial study was a really a blanket approval for everybody with gout. It wasn't just that kind of niche population, Yeah, right? which it should have been. I mean, I think that the initial study kind of was sort of silly the way they handled allopurinol itself. But, um, you know, I, the, 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 we, it's good to have two drugs sometimes. There are a fair number of people who can't tolerate or shouldn't be given allopurinol up front. Our ability to predict who those people are is not 100%. And having an option that is different was valuable. So I think that that should have been approved. And I think that almost all of us use allopurinol first line right now. So I actually don't think this is a that bad of an example of uh, the system breaking. All right, all right. Well, <laughs> Sorry. You know, you, know, you know the gout better than me. But, yeah, you're you're on the wrong you're on the wrong island here. Um, you know, let me let me take this back to um what 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 John was talking about earlier and just the replicability of RCTs. So 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 John, it, in one of your um on one of your podcasts, you said that you would you wouldn't use this for causal inference, and and I'd like to hear the argument for for not using this for causal inference. So 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 say we have a situation like these good replicable designs, you know, where head to head, we're putting two together, we have a clearly defined time zero, we have good ascertainment of various confounders, you know, we registered our protocol in advance. So there's no concerns about multiplicity, you do a target trial emulation there, and you see an answer that looks pretty convincing. What What's the argument that we should just disregard that information? Like, what, what, give me your strong case for why that's not useful. The, the argument is that, Mike, when I started cardiology, we had observational studies showing that you treat PVCs after MI. We had observational trials for hormone replacement therapy. My argument is that even if you agree that, even if we agree that it's 75% partially statistically agreeable, my answer is that there's potential harm in, in making wrong decisions. And so, you know, um, it's, it's almost like uh, uh, racing a bike on a trail. There's a certain speed that you can go. And if you try and go too fast and make an error, then you end up crashing and it's like bad. And what I see in medicine is, what I see in medicine is the ability, the, 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 the susceptibility of doctors to be overly enthusiastic and to follow therapeutic fashion. And so if we did one of these studies, and it came out positive and it came out positive for something that was profitable, then it would be a huge amount of tailwind and it would be a, it would be accepted and it could be wrong. And that's my problem is, is, is that I, I've just, in my life as a cardiologist, I've seen so many wrong things and so much harm that I just worry about being wrong about it. And, um, and so I guess it just goes to, it just goes to how much, uncertainty I have in my priors that things really don't work. Um, we should just, we should just believe that things really don't work as well as we think they do. But you know, can I want to push back on, I mean, not push back, just ask for clarification on the prompt for Mike. 
okay, because I guess, let me, let me see a little bit more of the scenario and let me just talk some options. Option A is I'm a, I'm a pharmaceutical firm, Merck, and my drug is already approved for one indication and people have been using it for another indication, which I've been encouraging them to do with my drug reps. And now I've collected, I've done this trial emulation and I have a positive result. And then is the question, should the FDA allow them to do that? Or should they say, hey, listen, Merck, with your you know, 40 billion in, mar- in market cap, run an RCT or, or shut the fuck up, as I like to say, you know, that's my slogan. Okay, is that the situation? Or is the situation like um, you're a rheumatologist, you've been just noticed uh, apocryphally that some of your patients on metformin were less likely to, um, or they had like faster healing after a wrist injury. And then you run the study and you're like, okay, maybe there's something here. Uh, I guess so. I, I, I guess that that will help me a little bit more. Which is like, what is the scenario where we're going to use it in? Um, yeah. How yeah, do you think? Me, yeah. Yeah. Let me give a couple thoughts. So I think we're okay. all in lockstep that this should not be used for regulatory approval. I will sign that petition in any okay. minute. Okay. Okay. Not a way to get FDA approval. Now, but, but you, actually, I just want to point out that's a big deal because I think they yeah. do want. Like, why does RCT duplicate run? To Todd's point, it's because the lobbyists have. They do want it. That's another reason I love yeah. RCT duplicate. It didn't get quite there, you know. We didn't. <laughs> it's just enough to argue against it. Okay. Uh, no. So okay, let so me. You don't want to use it for, for, Okay. So give me a scenario where you'll use it. Yeah. Yeah. So give me. I'll give you a couple scenarios. So okay. the first one. This. I. So let me go back to what you were talking about. You know, we have an approval for a narrow area, and then you're worried that a pharmaceutical company is going to use it off-label based on observational data. Is that right? Uh, do you think that they don't do that already? They I mean, already do that. No. What I'm saying is, all but, the time. Like, but, but like they'll amplify it. Yeah. I mean, you can't possibly amplify it more. I wrote I one of my recent newsletters was about gabapentin use. It's like the yeah. number six most prescribed drug in America. Yeah. Gabapentin has indications for like post-herpetic yeah. neuralgia. Yeah. Like there's like nine people. You know, there's a lot of people that. But um, we are using drugs. You're saying the volume's already at 11. Yeah, it's, it's already at 11. already where we are. Okay, okay. We're, but then yeah. tell me where you're going to use it. Okay, I get you. Okay, so it'll be a couple, a couple ideas. So yeah. for one, um, the the way that uh, it was used, I, I had Rishi decide on my podcast a minute ago. He's one of the folks who was participating in this thing. And he did this really interesting study of Janus kinase inhibitors, where we had this oral surveillance study. It showed that there was a cardiovascular risk to JAK inhibitors. And then, but it was very narrow because RCTs are so narrow. You know, you had to have X risk factors, had to be X age group. And so they used this and they used it as a calibration. So they said, you know, we're going to build our observational study. We're going to pre-register all of our methods. And then we're going to see if our estimate lands where the RCT did. And it did. And then they said, okay, great. So in that narrow subset, we now know that our observational study is calibrated with the RCT. Let's ask questions outside of the RCT context. And I just think that's brilliant. You're so using- what, but what is the question that they answered? Yeah. Um, does the does the cardiovascular risk extend beyond people who were older and had cardiovascular risk factors? And what like, was the answer? I, I'm, no. The answer is it didn't look like it, no. So I'm seeing patients in my clinic who are 23, would never have gotten into the oral surveillance trial, and I would love to know what their risk is. And so I think that's a very useful use case for it, is extending- And, and the drug RC- is used for rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, a bunch of different things, yeah. I see, so let me put it, let me see if I've summarized it correctly. Uh, we do a randomized controlled trial to get the drug to market. The drug mm-hmm. shows it does improve symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis, but there mm-hmm. is a concerning safety signal in these older folks. So the drug still comes to market despite the safety signal. Mm-hmm. It's prescribed off-label in younger people. Well, it's approved. The approval is broad. The broad, the right? Even though the broad. trial was narrow, the approval is broad. Well, it's the prescribed. trial included people who are younger, but I the see. safety trial did not. And so we needed to find that the safety trial applied to the younger people. I see. Okay. I guess. But my question would be, shouldn't the like the drug should only come to market 
in the group in whom you know there's a net clinical benefit? Yes. And I think the, the, it came to market long before oral surveillance or oral surveillance was a post-marketing study. So what does oral surveillance market, mean? Um, we're looking to see if the oral Janus and kinase inhibitor has this cardiovascular or a cancer risk. Yeah. I see. And I guess the idea is that it wouldn't take much of a risk to, uh, to say like, shit, we got to stop giving this drug. Yeah. And it's modulated our practice and it's affected guidelines. It was a very useful trial and it affected how we practice. Yeah. Okay. But then I guess back to the central point is that let's say there's a 56% chance that Rishi's study that it's safe in young people is, I'm going to go to my 56, the number I like. But <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> okay. But let's just say there's even a 6% chance it actually increases cardiovascular death. I know Todd wants to get in. Okay, Todd, let you get in. Yeah. Well, I was, I was even going to yeah. say, what if people were kind of scared to give it into younger people who they, they were worried, you know, had non-recognizable risk factor, like strong family history? Right. or certain ethnicity, you know, where, where you have premature cardiovascular disease or certain lifestyle. And they said, wow, you know, we're not going to give them that drug, right? They're going to yeah. confound by indication the observational data. And so then you go and you do it and you say, hey, look, it doesn't look like there's increased cardiovascular risk because you funneled all the people who are at baseline higher risk outside of the drug. And so you 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 do run the risk a little bit of getting, I think, a false, false reassurance. reassurance. Yeah, I think so too. And, and when I counsel younger people, I say that we've seen this risk in older folks who have cardiovascular risk factors. I th think that there's a chance there's not a, it's not there, but I still have younger people who choose not to because I don't tell them that there's zero risk. I mean, this is all about how you how you discuss it with people. Um, okay, the, give another example. Well, I guess I just wanted to yeah, do one thing example. right off the bat. But right off the bat, you know why John and I are a little bit, it's, I mean, maybe I don't, I want to speak for John, but for me, it's like, it's interesting to note because I'm in a business where, um, you know, uh, our outcomes are so grave that, you know, we're in the overall mortality business. So there would never be a drug approved in cancer that, you know, I mean, there have been that had a safety signal of death. But the problem is there's nothing that, you know, like we're not going to prove a drug based on a subjective endpoint and then find a safety signal later. We're powering our trials for PFS or OS. Or all something. my trials are subjective endpoints, but I, they're all subjective endpoints. <laughs> Let I me tell you about another okay, scenario. Yeah, another example. Yeah. You know what pharma hates is head to head trials. They don't like doing them because they might lose. The FDA doesn't make them run them a lot of the time. Well, they don't and have the legal authority to do it, they claim, but yes, yeah, they do, yeah, but yeah, silly. okay. Um, but what I love as a clinician is head-to-head -head trials. I really wanna know is the new Janus kinase inhibitor better than the old TNF inhibitor. And pharma just doesn't do these because they could lose, they're expensive. And for me, using observational data to generate comparative efficacy data would be really useful. And if we could do it properly, that would be nice. And one of the, my take-homes from this is that, you know, the design really matters for how valid your observational study is going to be. Right. And when you have a person who's, you know, you're comparing head to head, you have a defined start point. So that oral surveillance observational study that I was mentioning, they looked at people who were initiating therapy with uh, a Janus kinase inhibitor. And right. They compared them to people who were, had, were initiating therapy with the TNF. So they had a time zero there that they could work with. And so I think that um, generating data about head to head. Compared but back to, to that question, don't you think that like, if I work at the company, I'm just going to game the shit out of it. Like, when I do it, like, I guess, yeah. Who could do it faithfully? I guess that's the question. You know, and then the other thing is what about publication bias? You know, I mean, if the studies, uh, you know, you're going to have a huge problem with publication bias, but I, I still go back to the, I really think for the listeners of this podcast, I, I, I really think that whenever a clinician decides to give something, 
um, it's really a problem because it, it, there's just going to be unmeasured confounders out the wazoo. And I just think it's very difficult. Now, maybe there are some natural experiments out there, different systems or whatever, um, maybe. But the problem gets back to knowing, you know, knowing when it's right. And um, I, I, yeah, I, I still think that I, I still think that it's just a problem with confounding. So do you accept his 94% or you want your 56%? What is your, what, what, what are you saying to take, John? This is your. No, then, it, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. It's just it, being but, but, wrong. But about, John, but let me push on that for you does. a little bit. Here, yeah. Here's why I think his claim that it doesn't matter. He's saying that, you know, if you ever practice medicine where you base your practice based on one randomized trial, you're not at a hundred percent. Okay. You're maybe, we don't know exactly what percent you are. Okay. And so he says, you're already willing to accept something less than a hundred percent. That's his claim. You know, so then his follow-up claim is that what's your percentage? And this is, he thinks it's past that bar, but you, well, yeah. Okay. Okay. I would say that I would say regarding paradigm is not a good example because it's one it's trial. Shitty, it's a fucking shit study. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I would go that far, but it definitely had some limitations and, and every trial with secubitril valsartan since then has really been significant. So, but but can can I tell the listeners the the, the limitations real quick, just in case they forgot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Three, I mean, at at least three limitations. Number one limitation: the dose of the drug studied is not the dose prescribed in practice. Period. End of story. They're studying the max dose, and we have no data for the doses we give. Number two: it has a double drug run-in period of unequal periods of time, where you had twenty percent attrition on the run-in, and so whether it's generalizable to the person in front of you is almost absolutely unknown. Number three: the last drug on the run-in was the experimental drug, not the control drug. So if there's any penalty from switching, that's going to hurt the control arm at randomization. Number four, the backbone is Valsar 10 max dose versus 50% max dose in Alapril. Okay. And number five, there's never been an extant class drug. Number six, uh, Paradise MI is negative. And it's the only example I ever know of a drug in Heferuf that uh, works, but not in post MI. Okay. Those are the limitations. So it's like, okay. Right. So just in terms of accepting, you know, we, we accepted that it would have been nice to have another trial, but there are many things in cardiology that we do that, that have two trials that have much more certainty. And I, and I, I just would say that there's always uncertainty. There's always uncertainty. But when you have multiple clinical trials, ACE inhibitors, carvedilol, metoprolol, bernalactone, right. you feel much more confident than, than observational data. And, and so the difference between 56% and 96% depends on the context, right? We'd accept, Agree. Agree. We'd, we'd accept 96% correct if it was if it was something um, that wasn't a major, that didn't have a lot of risk, that didn't have a lot of expense. But when you accept, when you accept something that is going to be costly or potentially dangerous, um, I just think you need to be, you, you just need to be better than, you just need to be better than, than what this emulation study showed. And, and, and again, I would go back to the fact that these were chosen trials by the best experts in the world in causal inference. They won't be the ones doing all of these real-world studies that that come out positive. So With I guess I just want to comment about the data sets, multiple data sets you as want to well, talk? right? Yes. Okay, but I just want one comment about the trials, and then we'll go to you, Todd. But the comment about the trials is, I think some people could quibble about this particular selection. There's just too many non-inferiority studies. These are FDA registration studies. They're often cardiovascular drugs preferentially. Why are they doing these choices? They're doing these choices because if you have IBM data scan, if you have these data sets, these are the drugs in which you'll find a lot of users who have that gotten them drugs. That's why they're picking them. But it is, a, it is not random trials. It is a unique cohort of trials. And non-inferiority, I just want to caution that 
in a world where we allow margins so big you can park a school bus in it, which is the current FDA, you're giving, you know, this is a question that I wanted to ask, but like if you are aiming at a wide confidence interval, look, I can replicate every trial by just telling you the trial emulation gives you an estimate from 0.1 to 1.9 confidence interval, right? You know, I get a lot of stuff with a big interval. And, you know, so that's another limitation. Um, to, but, I, you know, I want to give Mike some credit here because actually uh, he, the, the uses he's articulated are ones that, you know, I hadn't thought that that's what he was going to say. And so maybe that's, that's another place here. But let me give it to you, Todd. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I had another thought, but I want to I want to riff yeah. off that, which yes. is I loved the VI hypertension trial, right? I loved that chlorothalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide. Let's talk about it. Yeah, pragmatic, cheap by I mean expensive by Canadian standards, but super cheap by American standards. Dollars, <laughs> ten thousand people, or whatever. And tell the listeners, tell the listeners why they did this study and what they found and why it was counterintuitive. Yeah, so, so this was a randomized control trial comparing two different thiazide diuretics, one a little bit more potent than the other, longer half-life, different pharmacology. And importantly, chlorothalidone was the was the thiazide in all hat, right? In yes. the like kind of seminal yes. blood pressure, what's the first line agent um, trial, okay? Yes. And, but it's not what's really used in a lot of places. People were using by proxy hydrochlorothiazide, which Correct. is a you know weaker, less half-life, in some way, maybe better tolerated. So the observational data from like province of Ontario or or different places suggested that chlorothalidone might be superior, right? The chlorothalidone might be the better uh, agent, and certainly it gets you a bigger blood pressure drop, milligram for milligram. And so what the VA said is, well, let's just build this right into our EMR, a super practical way of consenting people in the office, randomizing them, and then following them for major uh, cardiovascular events. And I was team chlorothalidone, friends. I'm going to admit it. I was team chlorothalidone. I thought and, it was- And let me, let me say why you were, because at least three observational studies had shown chlorothalidone had superior cardiovascular outcomes over hydrochlorothiazide in the real world setting. And it also had a logic because even if you miss doses, it's got a longer half-life. So it was both bioplausibility and solid observational data. So you were on team chlorothalidone. Many people were. They're also yeah. like, this is what was tested in the pivotal study, not hydrochlorothiazide. And then yeah. I'll tell us the results of the trial, the randomized And then study. bang, stone cold negative. Stone cold negative. Stone cold yeah. negative. No difference between negative. the two. More adverse events with chlorothalidone. So, okay, so so what's your point here? It's to, You're saying even in comparative effectiveness, you think it's undermined. Well, I, I worry that there's a counterfactual example to the claim that, you know, you're just comparing drug A and drug B, and they're even within the same family. Here's and Mike's first counterpoint would be that those observational studies were not trial emulations. They were the shitty old grandpa's observational study. You need Mike, to, you were going to say that. <laughs> I have a graph for you. Can I show you? Okay. Sorry Love for it. the listeners, but this is a... <laughs> I, I drew this while you were talking. Okay. And uh, this was... Uh, Darren Daly put this on Twitter after my evidence-based medicine pyramid came out. And for the listeners, it's a, it's a triangle. And at the top is a very small triangle. And it says, well-designed studies of any variety. And then down below that, and relegated to the bottom basement, is all of the other shit. 
And I think that we just need to take a step back and say like bad observational research is really dangerous. And if you don't control for time zero, if you don't try to address confound it as best you can, if you run 70 different types of the same study, you're going to seed the literature with nonsense. And so, you know, the, the, the conclusion from RCT duplicate isn't that we should start relying on shoddy observational work. It's that if you, you need to do it as well as, you know, as well as they were doing it here. And if you do, then, you know, there, there will be some valuable conclusions to be drawn from that. So, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I'm also a huge advocate for pragmatic randomized controlled trials, but um, in the real world, we're just not doing that many of them. And this is something that I have to say to John, which is that no offense, but y'all are in cardiology and oncology. You have the trials. I'm a rheumatologist, you know? We get a couple trials a year. And there is just not enough evidence being generated to serve a lot of specialties. The man is treating gout, for Christ's sakes. John, what do you want from him? Come on, John. No, I want to just say, I want to just say, I um, I changed my mind about pragmatic trials. I, I used to be, like, we just need to randomize, randomize, just pragmatic randomization, throw it in the EMR, but, you know, the problem with pragmatic trials is you introduce a lot of noise. And I think there'd be some critics of this uh, HCTZ chlorothaladone study um, uh, about blinding, about the fact that they randomized patients on HCTZ and then they stopped the drug and they gave them chlorothaladone. And so, and then, you know, the, the torsamide furosemide study was so noisy that you can't really generate from it. And then I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's this tension between doing a really serious restricted trial with run-in periods and, and research nurses and really selecting patients and at least learning in this select group of patients in this environment, we know X versus this pragmatic noisy trial that we, we, we just have less confidence in the results. And so I think we need to be careful about thinking that pragmatic trials are the answer because you introduce a lot of noise. And if you're introducing noise in a randomized, pragmatic randomized trial, just think of the noise in in uh, real world evidence generation. Okay, I guess I'm going to argue with you on that in a second. But I guess all right. I just want to make a few points on this that, I, that I've been thinking of and see what you think. I mean, I don't know. I, I do think Mike raises some interesting questions. Okay, I think like some deep, interesting philosophical questions, which is like, let's say I make a drug for heartburn. You know, I'm going to prove it based on some heartburn endpoints. Maybe I'm going to prove it based on symptomatic heartburn, or I'm going to prove it based on how many people have. Barrett's in two years or whatever. We can debate what the endpoint is, but I think few of us are going to argue you need to run a double-blind randomized control trial powered for all-cause mortality. I mean, that's on impractical. So as long as I live in a world of heartburn, of achy joints, uh, no offense, I mean, I don't know if that's it, you know, but heartburn, achy joints, <laughs> you know, knee pain, back pain, my endpoints are going to be short-term subjective endpoints necessarily. It's a natural, it's absolutely natural that in large databases we'll find safety signals. Like it's very likely a heartburn drug may increase MI or not increase MI or increase diabetes or not. And these will be very important because a little safety signal on one of these big endpoints is going to, you know, threaten a multi-billion dollar drug and have real relevance for the population and change practice. And I guess to Mike's point is, what would be the best way to go about finding such safety signals? Um, and I guess we are currently restricted to observational studies. The points that I might push back on a little bit are uh, saying that, you know, I guess I worry in that particular example, maybe there is a false reassurance to Scott's, uh, to, to Todd's point about um, cardiovascular death from Janus kinase inhibitors at lower age. Maybe there is a signal and then this emulation is missing it. And how much of signal would there be before you're like, shit, I don't want to be down to Jack 2 inhibitor and take that, you know, even have that gamble. 
The next thing is like maybe the FDA should be doing some much better rigorous post-marketing studies with like registration and keeping track of endpoints. You know, they're just god-awful at that. Um, and, but maybe Mike has actually a good point that that is a good use for this. The next point, the comparative effectiveness, maybe this is where I would push back a little bit more because um, this is just my bias in oncology. Every single drug we give, even when it's multiple branded drugs in a class, to Todd's point, I don't think anyone is giving them out randomly. There are squadrons of detailing and, uh, you know, borderline misinformation, you know, borderline dubious spin studies to like kind of shift market share. There, somebody, find, like the new company comes in the block and say, oh, you know, our drug is better in this healthier subgroup or worse subgroup. I mean, I would imagine if I was at the drug company and I'm the next in class drug, in a world where we're not doing these studies, I'd say, listen, let's go after the the intolerant patients. And, you know, intolerance in quotes because you can always, do, you know, you can... Just Sad intolerance. Yeah, they're intolerant, right? Now everyone's intolerant. Before, they was all in fucking in your head. Now they're all intolerant. I know, now they got a new drug, you're all intolerant. Okay, so I w that was the old model. But in the new model where you get to use these studies, I said, listen, buddy, here's how we play frame our drug. We go in for the healthiest patients. We tell these doctors, this is the, the premier drug only for the healthiest people. And then we do the emulation on the back end and get that, all that residual confounding and boom, we got them. You know, that's what I would teach the company. So I worry that it would lead to second order gaming, um, that sort of thing. And then the, second, then the last thing I'd say is like, okay, I have a solution for this. Congress needs to give FDA statutory authority for comparative effectiveness research. They don't have that statutory authority. The FDA does have the statutory authority to say new drugs have to be better than standard of care. They get to define standard of care. They've been very sort of um, conservative with that, using very old definitions, but they could easily modernize that within existing statutory language and make them go against the latest drugs. But I think they need extra authority when there are 20 drugs of a class to force the manufacturers to say, listen, we've got 20 PD-1 drugs. You, 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 you people are fucking crazy if you want to get 21. We need you to do a single study all tumor types randomized to PD, which PD-1. So we have some idea. Is, if Coke is really better than Pepsi by 3% or 5%, that really is a lot of lives. So we need to sort this out. So I do think that's one of the solutions. But, you know, that is idealistic. And Mike's point is that practically this might be a, a next step. Um, all right, Todd, let's hear your thoughts. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was going to say, we've alluded to it earlier, and I just I wanted to come back to it just a little bit, which is, this is a retrospective comparison. Yes. Okay. And, and John alluded to it. And I'm really interested in, can we predict the next hundred? Yes. Because, because here we are where we say, okay, here's the results and, and here's how they align with things that we already knew were the case. You know, so there's the dartboard and we threw the darts and we measured it. Well, I'm going to put a blindfold on you, throw the darts, and then I'll show you where the dartboard is and let's see how close you come to it. And, and I think that that would be the logical kind of next step to see how informative this potentially will be. Because I, I certainly do see with all those databases and all those investigators and financial interests, there's, there's, there's a lot of multiplicity bites at the apple, whereas it's very hard to run five RCTs. Yeah. It's very easy to run five observational trial emulations on market scan on the VA, on Ontario uh, database. It would be very hard to run five RCTs of the same question. Well, so the barrier, so the barrier to multiplicity is is much, much, much lower. But, but is it yeah. is it hard, Todd? Because is it hard, Todd? Because of a culture? Because we don't have a culture of 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 randomization, and we don't really have you know look look at recovery in NHS, and they 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 were able to do it, but but we I think we make it 
we make it expensive and we have regulatory burdens and we just don't have the culture of 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 the knowledge generation epistemology um and i i i, I don't know I, I just i know that's not really a, a finite topic but it's something I think about. I totally agree with you. Can I show you one thing? This maybe will help Mike, who I actually do disagree with a bit, but I, I like to help him because I think he he's brought me along a little bit on his path. Okay, this is the point of multiplicity. Imagine I have a new cancer drug. It has, it has no side effects. You can combine it with any drugs you're already giving the patient. And I run a single randomized control trial in every tumor out there. Uh, whatever you want to give doctor's choice, like you're already gonna give the patient something, right? Plus or minus my new drug. It, can, it doesn't have any interactions. It can just be mixed with anything. 100,000 person randomized trial, let's say it's negative. But then in post hoc subgroup analysis, hey, guess what? It worked in colon cancer when you gave full theory. It didn't work with full FOX, actually worked with IFL. In lung cancer, it worked with um, carbopaclitaxel, but not cisgem, that was a little weird. Breast, it just didn't work. Prostate, didn't work. Cervical cancer worked big. I mean, four months, people, come on, big. That's on four months survival, that's big in oncology. Brain cancer, it worked, not lung cancer. The first thing you all would say is, what the hell are you doing? This is a post hoc subgroup analysis. There's multiplicity up the wazoo. You know, you are really, you, who are you fooling, buddy? And I'd say, oh, you're right. You know, maybe we need to rerun the study here and here maybe. And then you'll say, okay, fine. Now let's say I'm the same drug company and I run, instead of one mega trial, I just run separate trials, but dozens and dozens of separate trials. Dozens and dozens of separate trials in every single cohort. They're all just nominally separate, but they're the same study chemo plus or minus the new drug. And let's say you get the exact same pattern of results. Well, you know how it would be interpreted. I think philosophically, these are the exact same thing, a portfolio and the risk, but it would be interpreted. Each trial would be interpreted separately. And we would actually say that it, this drug actually does work with IFL, but it doesn't work with Folfox. It actually does work with carbopaclitaxel, but not cisgem in the same tumor. And there is such a drug. Okay. And it actually is exactly this drug. It has, it has at least 50, 60, maybe 100 randomized trials. And if you go through, we went through, you know, you get statistically significant PFS with nominally significance in 64%. And, but if you adjust with Bonferroni for the portfolio of all the studies, you cut it. And then if you do OS, it like OS goes to null. Like there's not a single OS benefit. So to Todd's point, I mean, I do think you're right. Historically, we don't do so many randomized trials that you have this multiplicity problem. But we in oncology, we've created it. We are running thousand randomized studies, tumor by tumor, and we are creating the multiplicity problem. So, I mean, it really is a point to Mike's point, which is that we're, we're making it like observational studies. You wanna to comment, Todd? And then we'll go to Mike. No, I, I was just agreeing with you. Let's go to Mike. Okay. I will also agree with you. I think that multiplicity is a huge problem. I am, again, a rheumatologist. Multiplicity in trials is not the problem that I'm confronting. <laughs> but uh, I will say that I, I think that this is a huge danger of observational research. And we're only going to be seeing more of this uh, as the ability to do it and the access to data increases. But, but let me just take a step back and say that to what John was talking about, trials in general are a problem because we have outsourced trials to pharmaceutical companies who stand to make billions of dollars from them. Uh, that, that is just the state of affairs right now. Uh, and I think we all are exposed to that in all of our different fields. In rheumatology, I just gave a talk at um, some society meeting and I was talking about how many trials are in rheumatology are funded by pharmaceutical companies. 
it, it, it's around 90%, which is just, it, it, it's pretty outrageous. And so this is my third use case for observational data. I'm gonna throw this one to you. Mm -hmm. So w why don't we do some of these target trials to question the benefit that was observed in, in randomized trials? And this is especially true to John Mandrell's point about pragmatic trials, because in a pragmatic trial, you know you're being randomized and there's all these things that happen. I mean, whether or not the benefit that's observed in the trial is recapitulated in the real world or in observational data sets seems really useful to me. And so I want, I want to throw that to y'all. How would you feel if someone ran a trial, one of these ones that you dislike, Vinay, and then we did one of these emulation studies and we found that there was actually no overall survival benefit As for in a paradigm. As yeah, in yeah, or in paradigm. So, like the paradigm example, or in Avastin. Yeah. Say we did an emulation trial of Avastin and well, a particular cervical cancer type or whatever, and we found that you when know, looking in in this data set, there was no benefit whatsoever. Doesn't that kind of help you make the point that multiplicity in the randomized trials was an issue, and maybe cast doubt on the the potential benefit that's observed in these silly subgroup analyses? So, to directly answer your question, I would say, if you're using target trials to create some threshold by which you redo the randomized studies you've already done, you have my full support. Because I do think, and in fact, I'm working on some ideas where in some fields, I'm gonna even argue, we should just be continually randomizing. We actually don't ever, we never even grasp the truth for a minute, so we should always be randomizing and rerun or rerun, rerun. So I do think having more, like an easier threshold to redo these studies, like John has talked about redoing the ICD studies from the 1990s in the modern world. I think those are like, yes, I'm so like, yes, anything that does that, just like a fit test may help you get a colonoscopy. It may not be that useful other than triggering colonoscopy. You know, the, you don't even need to believe the target trial is that useful. It just triggers a, re, a, a, you know, a replication effort. I think that's good. But a couple other points I wanted to make. John's point, I disagree with John a little bit for, on this issue of pragmatic trials because I think the noise is the recipe. Real, like the pragmatic trial, like the real world is noisy. And the question is, look, we're giving you healthcare doctors 20% of GDP. We're saying help these people. And if you're fucking it all up with a noise, you know, then th that's money that I could have been giving elsewhere. So, you know, I accept. So like if it's a noise and people say after the fact, well, they didn't always take it and they don't always do that. Well, that's life. They don't always do what you say. The question is, was it worth me giving you the money to do it? And it looks like you can't get it done. Um, and then to, to the point about, um, um, uh, what was the other? No, I forgot my thought. Uh, it'll come back to me. Yeah, but the, I would I would just say I agree with you, Vinay. I, we don't disagree that much. Okay. I just I just had this Pollyanna view of, of pragmatic trials, and we should just run them willy nilly. But but when you start looking at them and you see all this noise, it's it's, it's sort of hard to sort out. Like torsamide, furosemide, you kind of really would like to know, but it was so noisy, you you really couldn't you really couldn't tell. Right, 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 right. But I guess my problem oh. with the pyramid of Darren is that I feel like it's often drawn retros like. Yeah. The, what what makes a good study is in the eye of the beholder. The New England Journal thought that the Calgar, Massachusetts masking study in kids was a good study. We're going to publish a reanalysis that's going to blow the hell out of it. I mean, we've expanded the date range and we find that the whole thing falls apart. Um, and so, you know, what's good is, is tough to know what's good in the moment, I think. Right, but that gets yeah. to my point about the, the using using observational data to confirm uh, uh, trials is that you have, you have two issues, right? You have what what people want to believe. So if the yeah. trial's positive, um, no one's going to believe. They're just going to they're just going to discount the the observational study. They're going to say it's confounded and noisy and that. But that also gets to the whole. That also gets to the whole thing that I'm interested in is is translation of the trial data to to the real world. And and um, I mean it's 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 very difficult to take a select group of patients who are selected to be the best patients who have research nurses looking after them to clinical clinical trials. So 
you know, but I just go back to my first point was that you just don't know. Um, you don't know which is right. You don't know if the observational data is right. But let me say this about Don's point, and then I'll give it to you, Mike. Um, I think one thing that we, I mean, that we should be more obvious about is the things we agree about are things that I think we are really in the minority. I mean, I think in my field of oncology, 95% of studies are run by pharma with huge biases. And I don't think many people think that's a problem. In fact, most people say that that's totally fine. And you're a contrarian <laughs> troublemaker for saying otherwise. So I just to acknowledge, and then the fact that Mike says he doesn't think it should be used for registration, that's already, I think, huge. I mean, I think so. I just want to emphasize that these are like huge areas of agreement. Um, and then the point that John is getting at, I think it is, it's, it's really the seminal point, which is that, you know, so much of what we do in day-to-day -day clinic is not like the trial. And, uh, and sometimes you don't have a trial. And my deep bias, which I think we all share, is that we're not going to bigger benefits. <laughs> you know, people are always like, oh, it's not like the trial. You're getting even more bang for my brutin. I was like, mm, in general, you're getting less bang for my brutin. You know, it's all regressing to harm and toxicity and lack of benefit. Um, that's my big bias. Uh, okay, Mike, you're going to say. John, you, know, you have to go. If you have to hop off, you have to hop off. We'll talk for right. five minutes about it. Uh, yeah, I got a few more minutes. Okay. So to John's point, I think this is where my example is a bad one with that oral surveillance trial, because that was looking at the sickest group of people. Trials usually don't do that. They look at the really healthy people and they use a soft, shoddy endpoint. And so you could run a, a, a trial emulation study where you extended your oncology study to the sickest people. And what if you find that the risk benefit is clearly horrible in that population? That'd be very useful information. And then by the same token, we flip that around and say, you know, what if you had a trial of Aston that showed progression-free survival, which I know you love, Benai. My favorite. And what if you extend it with an emulation study and you saw that there was no overall survival? And I actually think you're going to see a lot of that, where you can take the trial, do the calibration, like I said, and if in extending it to people who are sicker and older, you find that there is no benefit or that the, the the adverse events were really high, you know, I think that'll be really useful clinical information for extending trials into an area where the companies don't want you to go, where you I, can say, you know? I, I totally agree with you. And in fact, probably I personally will use it in that way in my research and scholarship. Good. Um, but, uh, I would say like my preferred solution is that the FDA make them do what I fucking want them to do. I mean, that's my preferred solution. I mean, not, you know, um, well, one thing we wrote was this pragmatic trials with pre-specified subgroups. And we talk about the current registration trial being like a nested subgroup in the broader study. So you look at the idealized efficacy and then you look more broadly in sicker patients, a la like recovery looked at, uh, um, interaction between severity of illness and dexamethasone. We could look at like sickness, but I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I don't just think you're right, Mike. I mean, even without target trials, I have already, in my many writings, used observational studies to cast doubt on randomized trials with limitations. I've been in that business a long time. So if this is a more reliable way to cast doubt accurately, I'm with you. Um, in my perfect world, I would require repeat randomized control trials to sort out whether the doubt was correctly or wrongly cast. Um, you know, I don't, I don't say that paradigm, I don't think that Qubertil should be pulled from the market. I don't say that. I say it should have a replication study. So my point is, you know, so I'm close to you on that, Mike. And, um, and then the other thing I would say is that, uh, but my preferred solution in all of these is that, you know, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but the FDA is not working for the American, I mean, their obligation is to the American people. It is to the sicker people with cancer. It's to the 80-year-old in my office who has heart failure and cancer. They have failed that obligation to that woman. And... 
you know, I have to be a fool not to see the real bias, which is they're doing, they're failing intentionally, in my opinion, because they get a lucrative job when they leave. Billy Dunn just went to the company that he's been lowering standards for. Uh, you know, it's just a revolving, it's just, it looks to me like naked corruption. Um, and that's my problem with them. And so I, my preferred but, but, solution- but I, yes. You'll read in the Wall Street Journal editorials that say that the FDA is too strict and we should have we should have more of a Hayekian approach where we just, a, a, a Milton Friedman approach where we just let things out on the market and let let uh, markets decide. And I don't, I, I actually, I'm with you, but I, I'll tell you a large, a large group of really smart people feel differently. So I, I don't like think they're totally off base in everything they say, but here's the things I would push back on them. Their idea would work well if the payer could say no. But if the payer has to say yes, and by payer, we mean all of us as a society. So basically, my plumber has to pay for someone's useless cancer drug, and the standard should be lower to approve the cancer drug so it like doesn't even work at all. And my plumber, like you're taking his hard-earned money that he's not feeding his kids and clothing his kids, and you're giving it to this use, you know, the, the shareholders of a company, that's really a just society? So that's one problem. So like, okay, these same libertarian sort of people, they also think that it shouldn't be compulsory to pay for insurance. And so, okay, so those two, you know, okay, so if it's not compulsory to pay for insurance, and then, you know, you there's no standards for what, you know, that's like, you can go to whatever movie you want, John. Like, I, I'm not gonna pay for your movie. The second thing I would say to them is the fallacy that they don't fully appreciate is that the average person is not that good at figuring out what's truthful medical claims from um, bullshit. And we know that with all these charlatans selling supplements and minerals. And, and the purpose of the FDA is to prevent that kind of people being preyed upon who are sick and vulnerable. And to prevent them from being preyed upon, you have to have trials with good outcomes, I think. Um, or you need to basically make everyone out there a really thoughtful student of evidence-based medicine. But we already have a hell of difficulty just getting doctors to get there. <laughs> just I agree with you. I'm just saying that I'm just saying that there are people who disagree yeah. with you. I guess, and I've read their papers, you know, the the Andrew Lowe paper, um, the MIT researcher saying that like we're both too restrictive and too permissive, depending on the mortality. Tyler Cohen, I'm sure, agrees with you 100 percent they have a point, like let's just talk about um, uh, the FDA restrictions on COVID-19 testing, preventing tests from being developed in maybe the one month that they might've been useful uh, before you, you know, that might've been, so there are places I think there's, and I do think there's too much regulation, which is that if you wanna bring a drug to market, you have to run so many useless sort of um, supplemental studies and have so much paperwork burden but then on the key, like definitive randomized trial, that's where they give you the pass. That to me is a broken system. Let me ask you, Todd. All right, maybe we'll just go around the table. This is a closing thought. Um, this was a good discussion, and it's called a roundtable and not a debate because I think that it is more of a roundtable, that the sides are a little bit shifting. I guess the final question for everybody, and maybe we'll go with you first, Mike, because you've already kind of said it. Like, knowing what you know about this, where will you use these studies? Where are you, you you're, you're skeptical of using them? Um, you know, what's your, as a doctor, you know, we're all doctors, like a doctor in the room with the patient, what are the things you're comfortable with making, you know, using this and what are you not? And what would you like? And then the la and then, and then the final question is like, what's the next study? Todd talked about his next study. What's the next study you want to see that will help you decide if this is good or bad? So we'll do Mike, Todd, John, and then we'll be done. Mike. 
Yeah. So I, I can, I'll give you my four use cases yes. I think are, are excellent. And I would reiterate my hard pass on any regulatory approval for this. Yeah, uh, you know, the first one is one that I talked about the calibration extension studies. I think that's really interesting. And I think it can be used actually to inform us about how to use therapies outside of context that occur in the randomized trial. And I think in a lot of cases, that's going to say that, you know, this healthy group looks great, but maybe outside of that group, it's not so good. Um, I think head-to-head -head trials are really important. They matter a lot to me. And I, we don't have enough of them, and the FDA doesn't require enough of them. And I think that this is a way to get some comparative efficacy data. I think there's a lot of shoddy RCTs. There's a lot of shoddy RCTs with shoddy endpoints, uh, with poor designs, shenanigans throughout. And I think this is an opportunity for us to cast doubt on some of those. And then, especially outside of the, the hallowed halls of cardiology and, and oncology, uh, there's just not enough RCTs for me to know how to take care of patients in a lot of contexts. And I, I think that generating more useful data uh, outside of that context um, for questions where we are just not getting those trials uh, is, is going to be valuable. And I think knowing how valuable that is by comparison to my preferred uh, approach, which would be a large double-blind RCT, uh, I think is, is, is incredibly useful. Now, my, my next study, I think, is the same study that all of us would ask for, which is what Todd mentioned earlier. You know, Let's do 100 of them. Let's do it a priori. And what I would actually like, though, to put a twist on that is that I would like to run the trials and the observational studies at the same time, because I don't think that the bar in this in this study was appropriate in the sense that we're trying to replicate Paradigm and Plato and all these trials that I, I want to say, we're going to run a good trial that does exactly what I want, and we're going to run the emulation study that does exactly what we would have done a priori. And then we'll see where each of them shakes out. And I, I think that would be more useful. And then just to push on that, then it has to be for things already approved for one indication for supplemental marketing because you wouldn't be able to do it. For, okay, right. It's not for NME, not for pneumo Kennedy. Okay. Yeah, it wouldn't work that way because it has okay. to have a, you have to have an to be on the market. body of evidence that's not yes. like just weird people going totally rogue. Uh, but right. so that would be, I think that'd be really interesting. That That is obviously not going to happen. And so I think going forward, I'd recommend epistemic humility about this sorts of information. John said uh, in his podcast, he said, some observational studies are correct. I just don't know which ones. And I'd say that about RCTs and about observational studies and about everything. And I, I think that just approaching each study by itself is important, but that's my final word. <laughs> I think that's very nicely said. Todd? You know, I like some of the things we've talked about. I, I like the idea of, of using the using uh, target emulation to have high quality observational evidence in areas where we don't really know anything because doing a high quality observational study i think is better than completely shooting from the hip and shooting from theory sure although it may lead you astray i i fully recognize that but but i i do think as long as it's done by altruistic folk um that 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 uh, all, all, th all three of them all three of them and 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 it doesn't inform practice for the next 50 years you know it's the bridge to generating the evidence right. I, I like that as a niche i like it as a niche to design the trial you know what 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 effect size do i think i'm gonna get right. what's plausible you know what what am i what do i need to look out for in terms of competing risk recognizing the generalizability problem of observational data versus uh, you know the select few that get into RCT, and uh, I like I like the idea for calling for new trials um, and detecting of of rare safety signals in large data sets that that you know the regulator should take seriously and uh, you know do post marketing um, work uh, to uh, confirm safety. 
Well put. John? I'm against all that. <laughs> I tell you why I'm against it is because when there's no when there's no knowledge, when there's no data, this I just don't have confidence that the real world data will will give us the right answer. And I think I worry more about being led astray than I worry about not knowing. Because if you don't know something, then it won't be in a guideline and a doctor won't have a guideline recommendation to do it. But if if enough key opinion leaders see real world evidence and it's done by the right people and published in the right journals, it'll get established as therapeutic fashion. And then if you're wrong, you're really wrong. And the downside risk is huge. But I, I don't want to leave the podcast with a, a, a view that I hate observational data. I think observational data can be very useful for uh, sa safety signals, for telling us what we're doing. Um, this is very important, very important to know. Um, there's very good, there's very, very good, for instance, TAVI registry data that tells us that pacemaker implantation rates haven't really gone down. This is important stuff for clinicians to know. And I think we can't get that from trials. We have to get that from real world evidence. And I would also, and I guess I would close, I guess I would close by saying that nearly 100,000 left atrial appendage occlusion procedures have been done in the United States. If a fraction of those patients were randomized, we would know within, we would already know the efficacy and safety of this procedure, but because it got established with uh, some dubious evidence and became a therapeutic fashion, it hasn't been studied. Now it's being studied now, but we won't know for five years 200,000 of these procedures will be done in the U.S. before we have an answer, and I think that's just tragic. That's well said. I guess this conversation has made me think about this topic, and John's last point I will build on. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about reliable, but I have a paper called Reliable, Cheap, Fast, and Few, and it's about these kind of questions, and it's like what we all really care about is we want reliable causal evidence. We want it to be reliable, cheap. We want to spend the least amount of money to get it. We want it as fast as possible. And we want as few people allocated to the ultimately inferior arm. And I've analyzed these trials on these dimensions. And the one thing John's alluding to that's missing from our discussion a little bit was that we find 15 times as many people get things done in observational data sets when you, you know, what are they actually going? They're looking at IBM market scan. 15 times as many people were exposed to the drug to figure out, to get the answer, to get that point estimate and confidence interval. And, and that's a lot of cost. And if we calculated that if the, based on current rates of randomization, like the cost to randomize a person, if the product is more than $8,000 per person, it's actually cheaper to do the randomized study than give the product out 15 times as much. But for cheap drugs, you know, it, it's better. Okay, so I just say that because I think one has to think about these things. But I think the, my final point is, and I don't think it'll be done, but I do think it ought to be done, is that a society who really wants to settle this question would do the following. You would take the next... 100 supplemental marketing authorizations facing the FDA. Mike's absolutely right. You can't do NME because NME, you know, the drug's not on the market, so he's right. It'll be like some quacks prescribing it, you know, and, and how would they even get the product if it's really a branded product they will have no access through except compassionate use. Okay, you take the next 100 supplemental marketing authorizations. The FDA remembers what they used to believe in, two randomized control trials. So they run two randomized trials on each question. So this will help answer Mike's point, which is how often does one randomized trial discordance from the other? And then... Outside of those two studies, once they are like nearly accrued, we'll start to debut a observational right program of this, and we'll have to, you know, just like kind of let, 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 let the drugs loose. Well, they already are loose, so while these studies are going on, we'll have the observational data collecting. And then the next twist I put on it is, instead of Sebastian Schneidelweiss and Rishi doing the emulation, you get a hundred different emulatory groups like Brian Nozick style. You get Sebastian, you get the folks from McGill, you get the folks from thing. Now you, you, you scattershot it. How often do RCTs agree with each other? 
uh, how often does, you know, how often is the, you know, the, and how often do each different emulatory group agree with each other? And now you're cooking with gas. That's what I say. Now you're cooking with gas. <laughs> Even though people may not do the whole study, I bet somebody will, like a Brian Nozick person, will do the second part, multiple emulations and against each other. That would be interesting. All right, gentlemen, this was a great discussion. You know, I learned a lot. And I see Mike's position is very different than what I thought his position was. And I think that's fundamentally. So anyone out there, but I, the last thing I'd say is that, you know, my worry is these, these companies, they, they have no shame. They're going to use this and beat us with it. So we got to be careful. All right, gentlemen, thanks for doing this. Thank Excellent. You.